Hello, Signal Boost listeners. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. After five years on SiriusXM Signal Boost, hosted by Jess McIntosh and me, we ended our run. We got to bring you so many guests through this podcast, and we appreciate you spending your time with us. I'm delighted that we've relaunched the show as Mornings with Zerlina. More of the news, conversations, and explorations you enjoyed on Signal Boost, of course, plus new ways to engage with you, our listeners, such as calls during the live show, 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time, weekdays on the Progress Channel 127. My partner in feminism, Jess, and I are still very close. We are still friends, but she is out there fighting the good fight for progressive politics and might even pop up for an interview or two on the new show. And of course, Professor Eugene Maxwell fans will be glad to know your favorite biologist and my dad will continue to be a regular guest on Friday mornings. I'll be excited to share all of his future appearances with you. I'm excited as well. And I'll be able to share my favorite mornings with Zerlina segments and interviews with you here on the podcast. Now stay tuned for the Mornings with Zerlina podcast. The vicious voices of the right are out in full force. And it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with change makers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us today is Jenna Ryu. She is a wellness reporter for USA Today, and we're going to be talking about Asian American fetidization and the dangers of that. Thank you so much for joining this morning. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing today? Well, you know... I we we were talking in the first hour about Oklahoma um, and their abortion ban that passed yesterday, um, the strictest in the country. So I've been better. This month is hard. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, agree. But uh, but I'm okay. You know, I think that anytime I'm up and I'm awake and I'm everybody in my family, my immediate family is safe. I feel I feel okay. We're do- something is going right. Um, I love your piece in USA Today, and again, it is a AAPI History Month. But I think even if this piece um, popped up any time of year, I would have wanted to discuss it. <laughs> um, so, so I should note that it is a API History Month. But this conversation is necessary anytime. Um, and I, I want to sort of set it, set the foundation for people, lay the foundation. Um, when we talk about fetidization of Asian American women and Asian women more broadly, what are we talking about? Like, how, how would you, how, how does that manifest? How, how would you define it and how does it show up? Yeah, so from my reporting, I found that fetishization manifests and that it makes it difficult for many Asian American women to kind of know if their partner loves them for them as three-dimensional human beings or if they only love them for their race. And I know this isn't exclusive to Asian women, a lot of women of color will definitely experience this. But uh, for my story, for example, I spoke to one woman um, who said she felt completely dehumanized when someone she had a crush on in college um, kind of showed romantic interest. And then during sex, he asked her to speak Chinese because he, quote unquote, was kind of into that. And so it was kind of like hearing these stories from 
not only uh, experts in Asian representation in the media, but also these Asian American women who experience this in real time. It's a sense of dehumanization and objectification that's common for Asian women, but it's often overlooked, especially when it's juxtaposed with the history of feeling undesirable because you don't conform to white Eurocentric beauty standards. And one of the things that that comes up a lot is is I think, I mean, reading reading the stories and you're reporting the anecdotes are, are really difficult because you can see the ways in which even things that, you know, people, I suppose, say as a compliment um, actually are, are, by definition, just dehumanizing. Um, and one of the stereotypes about Asian American and Asian women is that they're pa- more passive and silent. I mean, this is something that even comes up in our pop culture. Um, I'm thinking back to like the Pitch Perfect movies <laughs> um, uh, for, for like a more recent reference. Um, but can you talk about why it's not a compliment? Why, why many of these stereotypes um, – you know, people are saying them, I think, with the intention that they they're, they sh- should be taken as compliments, but they're actually dehumanizing. Yeah, there are a lot of Asian uh, stereotypes about Asian American women and even just the Asian American community as a whole that kind of seem complimentary. So not only the model minority myth, but when it comes more specifically to women, as you said, there are stereotypes that they're passive and obedient and docile. There's also other stereotypes that they're exotic and hypersexual as a result. And these stereotypes can be really dangerous, especially when we talk about the rise in violence and hate incidents um, during the pandemic. Uh, When we kind of talk about that, it stems from these biases and these prejudicial views. So for Asian women, it's these assumptions that stem from fetishization. Um, Like for example, as we said, that they're docile and passive um, and these assumptions that because of that, they won't fight back. Um, So experts that I spoke to for the story have said it's dangerous because Um, It's kind of this intersection of racism and misogyny, Uh, misogyny in the sense that because they're women, they're seen as quote unquote fair game by men, but also the fact that they're Asian and there's these stereotypical views about them that they're um, docile and they won't fight back. That makes them uniquely vulnerable to violence that we're seeing today. And one of the one of the things that that comes up a lot, um, I think, you know, in our conversations when there are, as you mentioned, there's been just a complete and total horrific increase um, in hate crimes, certainly during the pandemic. We also had the massacre at the salon in Atlanta. And I feel like even in in those moments where these, these things are happening um, in the news cycle, um, we do have a moment where we have the conversation about um, the, the sexualization of Asian women. I remember that conversation percolating after the Atlanta shooting. But can you talk about why even... those conversations don't go quite far enough because even in the context of the shooting in that salon, you know, I think people, they assumed that the women who worked in the salon were doing like doing something, you know, nefarious. Like they, they acknowledge that they were victims, but I think that they also weren't humanized in the same way that victims in other shootings were because it was basically like, a long explanation as to why the shooter did that and saw, you know, the women who worked in that salon as, you know, temptation or whatever word he used in um, his explanation. Um, That that explanation was like long and drawn out, but not the fact that it was actually based in in a stereotype, like a harmful stereotype. 
Yeah, I didn't delve too much into the tragic spa shootings in my reporting for this story. However, at USA Today, uh, both I and all my other colleagues have done some great reporting on how the community was affected and kind of felt about these shootings, especially because um, it's complicated when the police did not deem it a hate crime mm-hmm. um, be, and didn't see it as racially motivated, especially since, as you said, there were remarks from the shooting uh, from the shooter that these spas were this place of temptations that needed to be eliminated. Um, so specifically for that, I would encourage uh, viewers to kind of check out our reporting because we dug into those issues and spoke to people affected by the community. But speaking more specifically about the hypersexualization and fetishization of Asian women, what I kind of learned from my reporting is that, as I said earlier, just because it's kind of framed as complimentary, especially mm-hmm. in the dating sphere, um, it's kind of hard to tell the difference between appreciation and fetishization, um, which is why a lot of experts say they don't think it's talked about as much, especially when we're talking about um, these acts of violence. We also have to talk about the more subtle um, remarks about, for example, Asian women and myths about their genitalia that kind of further sexualize them, or these assumptions that, based on pop culture references, that all Asian women are interested in manga or anime the same way you are. <laughs> that <laughs> Some of these things are so ridiculous. You're like, how do people actually think this? Um, <laughs> One of the other things you talk about that's really, really fascinating, and I, I, I actually, when I was reading it, I was sort of comparing to my own experience because in, in some ways, and I've had this conversation with um, uh, s- many of my friends over the years, but in some ways, I see parallels between the way Asian men are treated and black women are treated. And what I mean by that is like in the desirability spectrum like Asian men and black women are like hanging out. Like we're, we're like, Hey, (laughs) undesirables. Um, and when Asian women, um, you know, have interracial relationships with white men, for example, um, you know, the criticism of them is that, um, they're not, you know, invested in, in their own culture enough and that they're selling out or that, they they are engaging in some some sort of self-hatred um that also happens with black women who date outside of their race too so so i see some parallels in this um that it, that at least came to my mind but can you unpack this for us because there's this you call it racialized slut shaming but i think this is this is a really fascinating aspect of the fetishization conversation where asian women who date outside of their race or date white men specifically um, are criticized for that choice. Um, And as seen as sort of like trying to whitewash, um, you know, their Asian heritage. Yeah, I definitely thought that was an interesting part of my reporting that I really wanted to include. Uh, One of my sociologists uh, that I spoke to specifically called it racialized slut shaming just because it invokes that intersection of racism and misogyny where it's this assumption that Asian women are expected to only date Asian men because of their race. And if they don't, they're seen as like a self-hating Asian or a whitewashed Asian. Um, And of course, this isn't exclusive to the Asian American community. Um, But I found it interesting because one of my sources was saying how these attitudes often stem from not only racism, but often misguided standards of beauty and masculinity. So while Asian women are often hypersexualized in the media. The opposite is kind of seen with Asian men who face that stereotype of being more feminine or 
quote unquote, undesirable or just not sexual. Um, but at the same time, I would emphasize with my reporting that it's important not to police anyone for their relationship choices, just because it adds on to that dehumanization that we see with fetishization. When I when I was reading that part, see, see, I'm a I'm a uh, a consumer of Korean dramas, and um, so when I read the sentence that Asian men are seen as undesirable in quotes, I laughed out loud. I just have to say that <laughs> I was like, ha, they have never seen um, a drama from China or Japan or or Korea. They just they just <laughs> that's a joke. Um, <laughs> I know it's usually the Western. <laughs> I was Western like, I mean, honestly, one of the things that's so funny is that. Um, I I sort of like and my producers will tell you like I'm late to the 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 Korean the Korean wave like I just now you know like in the pandemic discovered K-pop music and and Korean dramas and I'm just like that I've I've subscribed to like what is it Vicky so like I can watch shows from all over like I've I've subscribed to um not even just Netflix cuz I'm I'm like I need more um, but I thought it would, that was, that was actually a moment in the, in the article where I literally laughed out loud because I was like, <laughs> the idea that anybody in the world thinks that, um, men, uh, uh, who are API or not hot, uh, is, is funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, back to the serious points. Um, one of the, one of the quotes that struck me, uh, is we need to start seeing Asian women as subjects and not objects. And I think this is a really powerful point because this applies in other contexts, right? I mean, I think when we talk about objectification of women broadly, um, we, we don't necessarily unpack what it would look like if we were doing it right, if we weren't objectifying them. So I think the framing of seeing them as subjects, not objects is important. What, what would that look like? What, what does that actually mean in reality? Yeah, so just for some context from my reporting, um, experts have said there's, there were two common portrayals of Asian women back in the day. One was the Lotus Blossom, which kind of depicts Asian women as domesticated and docile and sexually subservient, usually to white men. While the other portrayal is the Dragon Lady, who is contrastingly exotic or dominant. And both these stereotypes, while they seem like they're kind of opposites, they uh, kind of share the same theme of hypersexualization and that it kind of reduces Asian American women to foreigners or temptations um, rather than three-dimensional human beings. So I also thought that quote about the importance of Asian women uh, being empowered to share their stories and be subjects, not objects, was really important. And one example of what that would look like is uh, one of my, I haven't watched the movie, just full disclosure, but one of my experts talked at length about um, everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but Mm-mm. she said it did a great job of avoiding crude like stereotypes of Asian women and kind of uh, gave them this platform to show the complexity of their character that goes beyond just their appearance or just their race and kind of showing them as a hu- like a three-dimensional human being. So I think when my experts were sp- speaking about the importance of, um, you know, like presenting alternative counter stereotypical narratives, um, it would look like that in the sense that they're not just seen for their race or just seen for their appearance. They kind of have the platform to have their own story and be empowered to tell um, the complexity of that. I mean, it's it's really fascinating, this conversation, when you really get into it, because um, you realize how silly some of this stuff is, um, <laughs> but also, but also how damaging, right? So it's, it's silly. I, I mean, I, I, I find that at least in my own life, I have to sort of make fun of 
patriarchy and white supremacy and, and be like, this is stupid. Like everybody realizes how dumb this is, right? <laughs> um, and we've set everything up this way. <laughs> and we've like value people more or less based on this stupid system that makes no sense. Um, one of the things um, you mentioned, though, um, is about sort of um, East Asian media. And, and one of the producers uh, here has a question about um, the polarization of East Asian media um, and has fetishization, um, you know, impacted the way in which um, anime and um, K-pop and like their fans interact with um, with the content? Because <laughs> I, I, in the little bit that I know about this, the fans are intense. <laughs> um, so does this fetishization come up as a result of you know some of the popular content out there like um, webtoons and um, anime and also like by extension k-pop which is actually like intersecting with anime in a lot of ways now yeah so as you've probably noticed there seems to be a growing interest in Asian pop culture with k-pop groups like BTS kind of making waves here um, as well as shows like Squid Game on Netflix mm-hmm. that kind of took the whole country uh, by surprise. And it's great that Asian pop culture is getting the recognition it deserves. But at the same time, we also need to remember um, that, for example, not every Asian likes K-pop, not every Asian um, is like a Squid Game character, as I've seen jokes about that on like TikTok and Twitter. So when we talk about fetishization, we're talking about kind of reducing a diverse community into this oversimplified monolith. So appreciating a culture shouldn't mean you're just assuming that someone who is Asian American fits into your ideas of that culture just based on um, what you've seen in the in like East Asian media. Mm-hmm. So for example, like um, what you see in like K-dramas or like um, what you think of like BTS, for example. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny you say that too, because I think that as I, I'm, I'm, Obviously, I consume, I've talked on the show a lot, I I consume a lot of K-dramas, but I also, I think I'm at the point now where I've consumed enough to get, to to reach a point, I mean, not that I'm watching anything assuming that this is a representation of, like, an entire population of people, (laughs) that would be stupid, Um, but I also know that, um, that it's always a mistake to assume that you know, one piece of pop culture is representative of any, any whole swath of, of people. Um, and I think that we should, we should try just to always um, focus on the humanity of people and the fact that like, there are a lot of things that, you know, connect us as human beings, even though some of the specific things about our cultures might be a little bit different, right? Yeah, of course. And that's why it's so important to have accurate Uh, representation, not just these, um, obviously they're not all stereotypes, but it's important to have a diverse um, representation just because the community is so diverse. Um, So I think that's why it would be important and kind of counter those stereotypes that we're seeing about the Asian American community today. One of the other questions um, I had, you mentioned earlier the model minority myth, and this is another conversation I've had um, with a bunch of my friends um, over the years, because um, one of my friends was actually going to write a whole book about this. She ended up writing a different book. Um, but for a while, <laughs> she was thinking about writing a proposal about uh, the modern minority myth. 
and actually how damaging it is. So there's there's we, we were talking earlier about how some of the stereotypes are, you know, I think the person sort of using them might think that they're a compliment, um, but actually they're quite harmful. And the, the model minority myth is is one that I think people probably are more familiar with in in their everyday experiences, even if they didn't know like what the name of it is. So if you've heard something like, you know, Asian people are good at math or something like that, right? Something that is complimentary, like they're uh, good at math and science um, and, you know, not realizing the fact that number one, if you really think about it, math, um, if you're coming, if you, if you're moving from another country to the United States, math doesn't have a different language. <laughs> so it's like, it's like um, one of, there's a, there's actually a quite innocent explanation for as to why many um, young immigrant students are really good at math when they first arrive. <laughs> Numbers are similar um, elsewhere. Um, but also the idea that they're, they're just smarter or better um, actually can be harmful because it is actually not accurate and it doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge the diversity of the community to your point. Yeah, for sure. Aside from the reporting we're talking about right now, I actually did a story on this piece, the, the model minority myth for USA Today's um, This is America newsletter. And I spoke to an Asian American mental health expert on this. But the interesting thing about the model minority myth is that it inherently raises the standards for Asian Americans. Um, so like, for example, it's assumed because of how we look and what our race is that we're, as you said, going to be good at math, we're going to be doctors, we're going to be lawyers, um, all these stereotypes that kind of seem like they are compliments, but it does raise the pressure to meet very high standards that are already kind of imposed on uh, Asian Americans. And an expert I spoke to, who is a counseling psychologist, was saying how as a result, some Asian Americans may kind of crumble under that pressure mm. um, and experience, you know, depression, anxiety when they fail to meet those expectations. So it really does have a damaging effect, even though it seems flattering and not so bad compared to other stereotypes we're seeing of um, other racial groups. Do you think that this is um, some of these issues have been exacerbated by the pandemic? I mean, the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and the fact that so many people, particularly Asian women, feel afraid um, to go outside and they're, you know, carrying around mace or um, some sort of uh, self-defense device. Um, and maybe they didn't do that before because of the uptick in, huge uptick in, in anti-Asian hate crimes during this pandemic. I mean, has it made it worse? Or are, is it created a space to have this conversation? I mean, how how do you through your reporting, um, what were some of the responses of the people you talked to in terms of how some of these issues have percolated to the surface in the pandemic because um, of the anti-Asian rhetoric from the president at the beginning of the pandemic that led to real world violence? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point that you make. From my reporting, the both the people, like the experts, as well as um, like the Real Voices I incorporated, they were saying how the dehumanization of Asian women, it seems like it's kind of amplified with the pandemic as we're seeing um, this the rise in violence and hate incidents against the Asian American community. Um, but it's important to also acknowledge that this dates back historically. It's not a new phenomenon um, in the sense that this racism, th these biases have existed 
for years, um, experts have even dated it back to white colonialism with um, like, for example, the, the Lotus Blossom and the Dragon Lady stereotypes that I was talking about earlier. So um, it was interesting just because of the feedback I received from other Asian Americans who reached out to me via email or um, on social media were saying that they kind of felt like these issues were always pertinent. They always were happening, but it kind of wasn't really being talked about. Um, but the pandemic has certainly amplified it. And we can see that with um, data from Stop API Hate, which is an organization that has recently been tracking uh, reports of hate incidents across the country during the pandemic. And there was a spike in the reports of verbal assault, um, physical violence, um, etc. So I think it's really important to kind of think about that this isn't new, but the pandemic has certainly brought it to the light and now we're here having these conversations about it. I mean, conversations are the first step <laughs> um, in solving problems. At least that's what I believe. Um, because if you, you're in denial about the problem or you don't think it's a problem because as we've talked about, you know, these stereotypes, these dehumanizing stereotypes are seen as compliments, um, then you, you can't work to resolve them. Jenna Ryu, a wellness, wellness reporter for USA Today, um, the name of the piece that everybody should check out, Fetishization Isn't Flattery, The Way We Dehumanize Asian Women. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's a really important conversation. Um, yeah, thank and you for having me. important topic. Thank you so much for thank being you. here. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.